I would love to have you take your Bibles then and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. Uh, The sermon notes in your bulletin will be a help to you in keeping track of where we're going. We will pick up the last paragraph or so in chapter 44 and take a look together at all of Isaiah 45. There is a question that periodically rolls through our minds. I think every single one of you, one of us, it happens to me too, a question that's not bad in and of itself, but it can be bad if it comes with an attitude The question I'm referring to is, where is God in this? Where is God in this? Sometimes we ask that of such things as wars or diseases, uh, threats to life and, and safety and things like that. We ask, where is God in this? When the bottom falls out of our finances, when there are major traffic accidents and we are injured. Sometimes we even ask, where is God in this? When we have a bad hair day or get a traffic ticket of some sort. Has it really come to this? Like, yeah, that's pretty awful. Uh, Pretty awful. Okay. Where is God in this can be asked in faith. It can be a searching heart saying, how do I see the gospel played out here? The same question, depending on the posture of your heart, can also be a statement of doubt. Where is God in this? So where is your heart asking that question today? may be that your mind is first captured with world events. It may be that you're asking, where is God in this on things much closer to home? Our text today, I have under the heading, the title, God is God and there is no other. And we're in a section of Isaiah that, that presses upon us the bigness and, and the wisdom and the power of God such that in those moments that when we, when we doubt him, and maybe even dare, if not physically, mentally, to raise a fist to heaven, this, these kinds of texts in Isaiah are a, a corrective of this. They're a reminder of the right posture of our hearts before the living God. And so I hope that we will be ready to interact with this. Where is God in all of this? Well, indeed, he tells us exactly where he is, and there will be no doubt. Um, Please do not hear any of this, any of this from God as, as lacking compassion. The best thing God can do for us is not to fix every problem, but to show us who he is and how great he is. That's the biggest thing we need, okay? I'd love to pray just at this moment that God would help us in this, in this moment. Join me, please. Our Father, for the time spent in your word today, we invite your help. Would you, would you stir our minds to think your thoughts after you and to allow the word of God to speak as the spirit of God brings it to life in each of us. So, so use your word, your living, inerrant, perfect, authoritative word in us now is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, your sermon notes, of course, words of review and comment about today's text. I'll let you look at those sections. I want to come down to the three headings that I have used today to mark this text and just to give you an idea of where we're going. And I think this, this follows the flow of our preaching section today. God, the supreme authority, acts in human history. I think that's the first. 
Second, God, always wise and always good, needs no advisors. That's the second. And I think the third, God, the ultimate redeemer, calls the nations to himself. We see, in a sense, the Great Commission uh, in the Old Testament, the seeds of the Great Commission, surely here. I want to begin by reading this uh, first section, chapter 44, 24, down through 45, verse 8, as together we hear the the word of God. We read this, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens and who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in sacred, secret places that you may know, here's a purpose, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west to the setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause him, cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Okay, wow, that first section. Now, I put this under the heading that I did about God acting in human history because this text really is a corrective to the deistic idea that God wound up the earth and the universe, shoved it into motion, and then takes his hands off. Or, perhaps the more common idea, that God only puts his hands in when something really important happens. And then the rest of the time, he just steps back and says, well, you kind of have to let it play out. See? No, this, this text, as we'll see, line upon line, points to God as supremely involved in human history. And may I say, the authority even though authority is, for many, something of a bad word. Now, as you note on your sermon notes, I have five bullet points under this heading. Uh, First of all, noting the opening phrase, thus says the Lord. It shows up five times in our 
overall text. Here, chapter 45, verse 1, verse 11, verse 14, verse 18. Thus says the Lord. That is intended to arrest your attention. It's intended to make you sit up straight, put down whatever else you're doing, and pay attention. Thus says the Lord. This isn't thus says the guy down the street whose opinions are not worth much. Or frankly, thus says you or me. No, this is thus says the Lord. It's intended to say, pay attention here, friend. It's a statement of authority, God's authority. The living God now speaks. He then gives two bases for this, for his authority. First, he says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, your redeemer. He is a God of redemption. Now, if you look there in front of you, I have these two, God's authority grounded in two ways. His work in redemption is the first of those elements. To a Jewish mind, their, their mind goes, would go not to the work of the cross because that had not taken place yet. Where you and I, when we read in the Old Testament about redemption, we quickly go to Jesus, dying on the cross in our place. Indeed, what a good place for our minds to go. But of course, back before the coming of Jesus, when a good Jewish person would read this about Redeemer, they would go right away to God's work in delivering his people Israel from Egypt. Uh, God against the gods of Egypt, you remember, the 10 plagues, and God raising them up, bringing out his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That 10th plague, you remember, the Passover, uh, the death angel, and the, the, the shedding of the blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, the doorpost marked on the sides and on the top, looking ahead to the day that the perfect lamb The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God, that perfect Lamb would come. So the Bible speaks of two redemptive events, the first looking to the second. But in this case, in Isaiah, reading, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, a good reader, of course, in this original day would say, yes, oh God, you redeemed us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from Egypt, and you cared for us through those mighty, mighty ways. So God's work in redemption is grounding his authority. Second, same verse, God's authority is grounded in his work in creation. And we read elsewhere in the Psalms about God's work in creation. Think of his power. He spoke and the worlds existed. He called them into being out of nothing. That is a Christian biblical position. Out of nothing, God created. There was not eternal matter that God reshaped. No, he, the eternal God, spoke into being that which was not. And millions of galaxies, millions of galaxies made up of millions of stars sprang into being. That's repeated, his power in creation throughout this text. You'll see it again in chapter 45, verse 12 chapter 45, verse 18, and so on. He keeps repeating it. I am the one who made you, and let's not lose sight of that. So he's grounding his authority in these things. Now, I want you to look at the progression from 24 through the rest of, chapter 20, uh, the rest of that chapter, verse, uh, chapter 44. There is a progression. God starts by addressing issues in the past that establish his authority. Redemption, creation, He then moves to his works in the present. Here's what he does, is doing, frustrates the signs of liars, makes fools of diviners. He's making, these are all present tense things. And then he moves to the future. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. He's looking here 
past the, the discipline event that is about to come. Israel has not yet gone into captivity. They will soon. 70 years have been set aside for my people. You read in the prophet Jeremiah, and of course, remembered in the book of Daniel. Those 70 years, that captivity has not yet taken place. God is already looking past it and saying, and after that, you will come back. And may I just say, again, I am fully aware that some who, who look at Isaiah, especially these next verses, how he calls out Cyrus by name, would say this had to have been written later by a different Isaiah. I press back and say, no, to, to, to assert that here is to undermine the entire story of the text. You might as well just toss the whole thing out. God is making a point here about the things he knows about the future. And if he's reading a newspaper at this moment about what already happened, the whole point here is gone. God is pressing here on, I am the one who can tell the future. Can your idols, can your false gods do that? No, you have no means to know the future. I alone hold it in my hand. So he's pressing on that. And then, of course, he goes right there after explaining the future for Jerusalem. He goes to Cyrus, of whom we spoke last week, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose. Wow. We we, we thought about that briefly a week ago. God here describing a pagan ruler as a shepherd and one who will fulfill his purpose. And he goes into detail in the verses we read at the beginning of chapter 45. God saying, I can use even one who does not acknowledge me to accomplish my purpose. It's establishing his power. This is Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Hear hear God's word. The heart of the king is it as a channel of water in the hands of the Lord? This text is about correcting our view of God as a small and impotent being, saying, no, not at all. The heart of the king, the heart of Cyrus, is in his hands. Now, uh, as you look at your, those bullet points under that heading, speaking of Cyrus, God is explaining his reason for announcing him in advance that everyone everywhere would know that there is no God but the God of the Bible. And if you, 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 I want you to see the phrases that are repeated here. All right, there, there are words that are used again and again and again. It's almost like God might think we need to hear it more than once. What a crazy idea is that? Well, chapter 45, uh, look at this. Verse four, uh, I call you by name. I name you though you do not know me. Verse five, I am the Lord and there is, what is it? No other. There's no other. Besides me, there is no God. Into verse 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Down to verse 18, again, beginning one of those thus says the Lord section. Verse 18, closing, I am the Lord, there is no other. Verse 21, there is no God, other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, I am God, and there is no other. You who are parents of young children, you find yourself sometimes to the point of frustration because you are saying it again, the same thing. What's the problem with these kids? Did they not hear you the first time? It's the same problem with us, isn't it? Because how quickly, how quickly we hear it once and we then begin to find God's substitutes. We go to other places for fulfillment, for joy, for, for life's meaning, we, we go find ourselves in some place other than in the God of the Bible. How quickly we search for other, other sources of joy. 
We chase them insatiably rather than going to the one from whom all joy truly comes. We, we pursue God's substitutes quickly. And so God says again and again, all the way through this section of Isaiah, you'll notice the same phrases, not only in this text. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no other. No other what? Well, no other God, no other source of life, no other source of being, no other source of power, none greater. When your kids ask you, who created God? You were right to say no one created God, honey, or buddy, whatever it is, whichever you have in front of you. No, God is God. He has been God forever. If one created God, that one would be God. That one would be bigger. No, God, the only uncreated being. It's interesting, even people who don't believe in God believe in something eternal. Did you know that? You're stuck. It's either eternal God or eternal matter. See, you're stuck with one of the impersonal matter, the source of the Big Bang. If you take God out and say, well, there's a Big Bang and all this stuff, uh uh-huh, keep going. Where did it come from? And you're stuck. So that's an interesting conversation to be had. I know you believe in something eternal, either impersonal matter or a living God. And you've got to have more faith than I do if you believe in eternal matter only and just some random explosion that formed the glory that we see, purpose, design. Wow, God, the supreme authority acts in human history. Now, of course, the work of God through Cyrus is laid out in chapter 45. And make sure you know that as you come down to Uh, verse 5, for example, make sure you know this is still talking about Cyrus, so that when you read, I am the Lord and there is no no other besides me, there is no God, I equip you though you do not know me. He's not talking about you here. Like, oh, that's before I came to Christ. Nothing about that. It's not about you at all. Imagine some text in the Bible that isn't about you. This is about Cyrus, about God's power in the life of Cyrus. I'm, I'm equipping you though you don't know me, Cyrus. So that people would know from the rising of the sun to its setting in the west, there's none besides me. They will look at my power in a pagan ruler. I am able to turn him. And they will say, only God. Only God can do this. And then I mentioned, here it is. The decree of Cyrus, you can read about this in Ezra 1, for example, or the last closing section of Second Chronicles, right before Ezra 1. You read the same thing. Ezra describes uh, Cyrus and his decree that God has foretold right uh, here in this text a couple hundred years before it happened. Interestingly, the Jewish historian Josephus, you may have heard of, not a believer of Jesus, but but a a Jewish historian, uh, tells that back in this day, the day of Cyrus, again, not inspired by God, so who knows if it's actually true, he tells the story that someone, when Cyrus came to power, took him a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and said, hey, hey, boss, look what I found in some ancient scroll. It's got your name in it. And that somewhere there, Cyrus went, wow, that's pretty cool, and let the people go. Now, of course, Cyrus did not just let the Hebrew people go. Babylonians, as they conquered various peoples, they took a whole bunch of them this way. They said, okay, you guys come, you guys come, you guys come, you guys come. Cyrus took a look around and said, you guys want to go home? Okay, go. You guys want to go home? go. You guys want to go home? So for whatever his reasons were for doing that, he let a lot of people go. That was his method of of, uh, urban renewal, I guess, sending home a lot of captured peoples. And indeed, that's what God did through Cyrus. You can believe uh, Josephus if you like, or say, yeah, probably not. Well, 
Um, Josephus, the historian, would suggest that. So in this first section then, God, the supreme authority, acts in human history, speaks with authority, authority that is grounded in his work of redemption and his work of creation. Now, I move to that next section, and the, the stage is set for this, okay? Starting in verse 9, it's as though God, through Isaiah, is anticipating you or me having a problem with this or a question. Where is God in all this? What is, what is this raising up a, a pagan king about? Couldn't you find better material to work with? How can this be? And so you come to verses 9 through 13. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. I learned it as woe to him who quarrels with his maker. I think it's the NAS. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. I'll comment on that in a moment. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Yeah, you better not say that to a mom in labor. Don't you think? I mean, this is good wisdom, Isaiah. Well done. Yeah, you are about to get your eyes scratched out. Man, this is good. All right, well, sorry, verse 11, I digress. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth, created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him. And again, those hymns are Cyrus. Keep it in context. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So it's clear there at the conclusion that, that God, through Isaiah, is assuming you're, you're still protesting or thinking about Cyrus, still talking about him. And in that context, he says, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Wow. You ever do that? You ever look at the work of God and, and question its wisdom? Come on. You ever looked at something God has, we would say, allowed? And we say, man, I never would have done that. I mean, did you miss that day? Come on. Where were you when that happened? Were you sitting there watching? And in this case, Cyrus, are you kidding me? You had no one better to work with? I mean, Cyrus, pagan, not a man of faith. And God's answer is not to explain himself. You notice? He does not tell you why. He doesn't say, well, <laughs> let me break it down for you. No, he says, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Then he gives him a nice practical example. A pot, well, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Interestingly, I, I've never, as they say, thrown a pot. I don't mean across the room, but you know uh, pottery terms. I don't know if you've ever watched this either in reality or on YouTube or in some movie. If a, if a person is making a pot and they have the spinning wheel going and you've got this thing of clay, um, in this text, it's, it's personifying the clay as though able to speak. 
And the clay, as the potter is working, kind of little mouth opens up on the side. We could do this with animation today. Like, you're pretty lousy at this. Well, that'd be interesting. What happens, some of you who know, if a potter is making a pot and something goes wrong, what do they do? They go, squash. They do. It's, oh, oh, really? Well, well, I'll make you into something else. Boom, start over. You imagine the little mouth going, oop, sorry. This would be a funny uh, little, little uh, thing to do, I think. Uh, what are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. And I think, don't they kind of punch it sometimes? Yeah, I've seen that. It's like, wow, that's pretty aggressive. And his point is well taken. Will the pot say to the potter, what are you doing? Will we really do that? Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Or say, now the ESV here has it as a question. Your work has no handles. Okay, the ESV stands alone of the major translations in giving it that, that kind of a translation as a question. If you have any other version, uh, you have it as a statement of some sort. Like, he has no hands, or something like that. Again, I think that's the NAS. It's calling into question the wisdom or the ability of the potter. The NLT here, I really like. It has the pot saying, stop, you're doing it all wrong. How clumsy can you be? And right at that moment, the potter goes, bam, I know, it's true. Enough out of you, little smart mouth pot. Wow, I'll make you into something else. I have complete autonomy as the potter to make out of the clay what I will. As we read that same analogy elsewhere in the scriptures, it shows up several times. I can make, Paul would say to Timothy, I can make a vessel for honor, fit for the master's use. I also need one in the corner to collect garbage. And I'll decide when I make the pot what its use will be. I'll decide what it looks like. I'll decide its features because I am the wise potter and I am the one making this wonderful piece of work. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us we are his workmanship, a poem. The Greek word is poema, right out of poem, your masterpiece. I'm creating something here. So the potter says, I'm the one who's, I'm the one who's doing this. And for you to second guess my work to say, you didn't do that very well. You didn't give me what I wanted. I want it to be a taller pot. I want it to be a smarter pot. And God says, no, I formed you as I, as I wished for the good that I intend to do in your life. So don't miss the word of God on these topics, right? God is the one who has authority. Now I put on your study notes here, please look at these with me. Our ability, sorry, our inability to understand the purpose and ways of God does not mean that his purpose and, under, and ways are flawed. Our inability to understand the purpose and ways of God does not mean that his purpose and ways are flawed. What it means is you and I don't understand. That's what it means. We don't get it. But it doesn't mean his ways are flawed. And I see here my second little bullet point. Be careful about quarreling with your maker. Ask questions. Indeed, yes. Demand answers or shake your fist or in your heart of hearts, stomp your feet at God. No, no, Um, This is a topic of popular discussion today, Uh, different people who speak or put it in writing, and I don't have anybody in mind, certainly no one present, but it's out there. The number of people who, (laughs) let's put it this way, if one more person says, God is a big boy and he can handle it, 
uh, yeah, I don't have an answer. To, I, I don't know what to do with that. God is a big boy. Oh, really? Thank you for your pronouncement. The one who formed heaven and earth, who called into being all that exists, created out of nothing, holds it in place by the word of his power. Oh, he's a big boy, you say. Wow. Gracious of you, eh? What? A, I'm sorry. What a dumb thing to say. Is that a good sermon phrase? He's a big boy. He can handle it. Stop. You refer to your maker as a big boy. Blasphemy. No, no, creator God before whom you bow and shake. You reverence and respect. Big boy, my foot. No, ask questions. Yes, ask questions. And oh God, help you not in the same breath to shake a fist or stomp your little foot and say you did it wrong to accuse God of evil. Oh no, questions, yes. Shaking fists, don't. God says, interestingly now, down in verse 11, ask me of things to come. Again, he's making a point here in the text. He can do that. He, can know, he knows the things to come. He can announce them. And then he says, as the ESV renders it, will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? In other words, now, now, Not all your translations have it as a question. Several of them do. I think the NIV does as well. Several do. Will you command me? Really? Did you send, oh, note to to God. Here's what I think you should do. Think of the audacity of that. That's what the text is drawing out. Will you command me? And it draws the book of Job to mind. And for a moment, I would like to go back to the book of Job, um, just, just a ways, and as we do that, I've given you several texts here to look at, but I, I wrote the reference wrong on the first. Instead of Job 35, we need to go to Job 38. If you would correct that, that'd be great. Still verses 1 to 4. I just want you to pick up with me the similar thought in the work of God with Job and to add one element to our teaching here, all right? So the book of Job, of course, as you probably know, is a story of a man, of man of faith, who walks with God, none more righteous than him in all the earth at the, at the time, probably back in the days of Abraham or before, but one who's righteous before God and by God's providence through a drama that takes place that Job does not see, a drama in the heavenlies, Job loses about everything. His, all of his kids, 10 of them, all of them, all his property that was money in those days, flocks of everything, his servants, he loses everything in short order, and then his health. His wife, not understanding at all, says, curse God and die. Thank you, honey. Encourage her. I don't think she was Barnabas, uh, the encourager. But it sure looked to her like, man, this is not going well. Last thing left is, I hope you have a good death. It looks like you're going down. Job's friends finally come, several of them, four of them, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, sit with him in silence for, for seven days. Good. From there, it goes downhill as they begin to give their advice. They're operating on a world very similar to others in this, our world and maybe yours. That is, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Job, bad things are happening. Ergo, repent. And Job is saying, I didn't do a thing to deserve all this. And that's true. God was doing something else. But his friends were doing what sometimes we do. Uh Uh-huh, I saw something bad happen. I wonder what that person did. Well, wrong of us to so judge. Well, Job then is in this big dialogue with his friends and at some point moves from a place of, 
of God has done this in defending God to a place of accusing God. Himself, he does. You know what? You got, I don't deserve all this. How many of us have ever said that? What have I ever done to deserve this? I did this and this and this, and now that phone call from the doctor, or that and how, I mean, what have I ever done to deserve this, we say, reflecting that worldview that's been around for a long time and isn't biblical, okay? So Job gets corrected here. I'm in Job 38. Hear, hear God's address of him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man or gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then off God goes on Job. Isn't that a great place to start? Oh, Job, thank you so much for your correction. Were you there on the day of creation? No, I think not. God even engages, we would say, strong irony. Some would say biting sarcasm. That's fine. Verse 21, he's asking him all these questions. Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Do you even know this? And then he says, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. How about that from the mouth of the Lord? Oh, that's right. You're the smart one. What's your IQ again? Wow, impressive. That's what God is doing with Job. Now, he goes on about this line upon line, paragraph after paragraph, all the way through chapter 39. Now, watch what happens in chapter 40. Uh, Job responds, but God is not done with him. He's working on something else. So we read, the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Okay, go ahead, Job. Explain it to me now. Now, Job's answer is incomplete. See if you notice why. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay. I'll be quiet now. Is that God's purpose? Merely to silence him? It's not. So Job here says, well, I'll just quit talking. And God says, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't, because your heart has not yet bowed to me. I am not done with you, young man. And so he says in verse 7, well, again, verse 6, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, gird up your loins, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Imagine. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that can thunder with a voice like his? And then he, off he goes again, paragraph upon paragraph, pointing to his works in creation. Do you see this animal? I made this one. Here's another animal. I made this one. And all of it comes down to chapter 42, where there's a conclusion. Job answered the Lord, and you hear his heart here. It's different than chapter 40. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Memory verse for the day, if you'd like. Job 42, verse 2. I know, O God, that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can heal what no one else can heal. You can redeem what no one else can redeem. You can turn this person's heart or this nation in a way that no one else can do, O God. You can do this. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, 
which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I'll, I'll question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, I'm switching the posture. I'm no longer questioning you, God. I'm uh, doubting you, but I'm going to ask you things. You teach me. Verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I repent or despise myself. I, I'd repent in dust and ashes. Wow. Wow. Okay, this is better. This is a turn of the heart that bows before the God who speaks. And instead of saying, hey, uh, God, I mean this in all due respect, but how dare you? This is a heart that says, God, I don't understand your ways, but I, I trust you fully. I honor you. I receive from your hand even what's hard. Now, have here also on your study notes Uh, This, coming back to Isaiah 45, these words of caution, the woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, all of those, they anticipate God's people asking questions about God's plan to discipline them and eventually rescue them using pagan rulers. And I mentioned here uh, Habakkuk 1. I would encourage your study in that direction. It's the same topic. It's exactly the same topic about the same things, really. Habakkuk 1, 12 to 13 God, how can you use one more evil than we are to punish us, to judge us? How can you do that? And God interacts, and of course, in that context, gives those words that the Apostle Paul captures and uses so well in Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith. Words that rocked history, of course, even in Martin Luther's day, the just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk chapter 2, of course. But study those, study those words as you question God and wonder. So I'm saying this, God always wise and always good, needs no advisors. That is not to, with a frown, to, to push anyone down. This is not God in anger saying, don't you dare question me. Has you, you know, has you by the face. That's not it. No, this is, this is an all wise, all good God saying, listen to me. I am always good. I am a good, good father. I'm wise. I have never once made a mistake. Not once. Trust me here too. Okay? This is a, this is a smiling God, a kind God, saying, and, and I really don't need any advisors on this. Interesting, if you want another paragraph about that, go to the latter several verses, four verses in Romans 11 that fall into Paul telling the work of salvation, God's work with Israel and the Gentiles. And Paul then just erupts in a note of praise that fits right into Isaiah. Oh, the depth, the wisdom, the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways, his paths beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Just the latter part of Romans 11, stunning, stunning. I want to move to that third section then for us today, the last half of chapter 45, Uh, starting verse 14, two more, thus says the Lord's, but I want you to hear the call of God to the nations preceding what we call the Great Commission. So verse 14 down to verse 17 is where I'll start. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. In other words, Israel, Israel as a nation, uh, for whom I believe God has a, a national purpose, he's saying there's going to be a day your enemies today will bow before you. 
Your enemies will be no more. That's what's being described. Truly, verse 15, you're a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior, the Redeemer. See that again. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. Nation of Israel being spoken of here. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Looking ahead to a day of redemption. And then again, verse 18, thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. And he's speaking on the same element here. I'm going to go down to verse 22 where the call is given. It's kind of a conclusion, a crescendo, if you will. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return or shall not return empty, as you would see in chapter 55. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out, verse 23 again, in righteousness a word that shall not return, return void, return empty. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Good New Testament readers immediately think Philippians 2. Don't they, Right? This is, this is spoken of the name of Jesus. What? Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. In him shall come, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So I have here under the heading, uh, God, the ultimate redeemer, calls the nations to himself, and he is doing it, as we saw last week, in this, in this time and way, through the nation of Israel. That was God's purpose, that the nation of Israel would be a sign and would turn many to righteousness. That was the reason for God's blessing of the nation of Israel, as you found back in the Abrahamic covenant, starting in Genesis chapter 12. God calls the nations to himself. I'll be exalted in the nations. Turn to me and be saved. What is it? All the ends of the earth all the ends of the earth. Missions, we would say, even to the end of the earth. Matthew 28, spoken of right here in advance of what we call the Great Commission. Now, I want to go to that section called Responding to God's Word, and in the next couple of minutes as we draw our time here together to a close, I would like to think with you about the bigger picture here under that heading, God is God and there is no other. I'm asking you this, honestly now, do you struggle with God's authority, with what God has done and what he has allowed? Do you find yourself, as people sometimes say, I'm mad at God. Is this you? Chafing against his ways, doubting his goodness, or questioning what he brings to pass. In your asking of God, what's, what about this? Or the question that we began with, where is God in this? What's your attitude toward him? Are you questioning with an attitude of faith, looking to see gospel work take place? Lord, help me to trust you here. Is that what you're doing? Or somewhere in your heart, is there a fist raised? Or is your foot stomping? Or are you demanding of God, as he says, are you commanding me? Oh, time out. Are you commanding me? Are you? Are you? I would love to have you think about this in your heart before the Lord. I'm going to pray in just a few minutes, and I'd love to have you just think about these things. Is there a specific area in your life in which you're asking God, why did you do that? 
And maybe you would ask God to meet you there, not to explain, but to help you trust him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. I'm going to begin this prayer with a moment of silent prayer. I'd love to have you just think about these things in your heart with the Lord. Are there areas where, where you wonder, God, what have you done? Why? I don't understand. Are you crossing a line of demanding? Ask God to help you get back where you belong, to honor him and reverence him, and to receive from his hand what he gives. Lord, you are God, and there is no other. Reminded of the song that says, though he giveth or he taketh, God his children ne'er forsaketh. Indeed, you are always wise and always good in what you allow and bring and do and command. You are king and God of the universe. Now, Father, I pray for us as we, so small of creatures yet loved by you, as we live before you, would you help us in our, in our questioning to, to know that even as we question, we are bringing those before the God of the universe who has never once got it wrong. And, oh, Father, help our hearts to bow in reverence before you, to say, oh, God, I trust you. I really do. I really do. And I receive from your hand what it is you allow or do. Oh, God, help me with my heart attitude. Build faith, our Father. Point us to Jesus. There at the cross where wisdom, goodness, so were shown as Jesus bore our sin. How we thank you for Jesus. And we pray together in his name. Amen.